I can troll you with my Oh my god. Yeah, but that's like not even your real Hello. team. That's your B team. That's my I mean, what am I gonna root for the Kings? You think I thought gonna... you were a Penguins fan. Well yeah, Penguins like in a broad sense, but I think <laughs> more you, you know, teams, yeah. fans. Uh, no, I don't know because I have like obsessive personality problems where uh, it's just one team and you know, I, I don't really, I, I can't, it's like um, I'm like a stalking girlfriend or something like that. Well, that's all right because I'm a whore. So right. Okay. There just, you go. It's kind of just the way it works here. So I'm like uh, a religious zealot that waits to have sex till marriage and you're just pimping yourself out. That's. A metaphor for a lot of things I'm doing in my life. So I there think you go. Hello, humans. Welcome to episode 26 of Your Power Report. I am Dan from the internet, and pardon my lapse in humility, but the thing that keeps me up at night is figuring out what to do with all of the political experience that I have. I specifically think that the experience from my vantage points paint a clear picture of how to move forward into our future. I had my political awakening near the end of the Bush years, watched the whole of the Obama years, began working in media during Obama's second term, and continued through much of the Trump administration. Being a kid and now a young adult through all of this has taught me deeply profound lessons that the so-called adults in the room in the political space may never actually understand. And it's important because these lessons broadly inform what I like to call the new left. So to have the right conversation about this fresh frontier in American politics, I had to sit down with one of my contemporaries. I'm Emma Vigeland, co-host of The Majority Report on YouTube, on Peacock, on Discord, wherever. <laughs> we start with a conversation about our respective governors, Andrew Cuomo of New York and Gavin Newsom of California, and then get a little bit deeper into the Democratic Party's love of political dynasties. Then we shift into the juicy part about the conversation about what the left is today and what it could be in the future. Emma is a hardworking journalist, one of the few people I trust to go to for news on a daily basis, and one of the most genuine people I've had the pleasure of working with. As you're listening to or watching this conversation, be sure to follow Emma Vigeland on Twitter at Emma Vigeland, and watch her on The Majority Report on YouTube, Twitch, or Peacock. And also make sure you're subscribed to me at youtube.com slash danfromtheinternet so you don't miss any more episodes of Power Report. Power Report is a brand new leftist talk show, but with color because we believe that conversations about class politics and intersectionality are not mutually exclusive. Uh, again, youtube.com slash danfromtheinternet to make sure you don't miss any new episodes of Power Report or any of the other things I'm doing. So now let's get to the interview. Emma, thank you so much for joining me on Power Report. It's been a long time coming and getting to just have a proper conversation with you as friends because like we're both very busy people, you with being a co-host of a um, really cool uh, leftist news show that's going on. But I'm glad that we can kind of take some time out here outside of our usual cycles to embrace our true identities, you as being the most aggressively New York, like proudly New York person I know, and me being like, so Californian it hurts more than I even want to admit it like surfing stoner all of that so like let's just take some time and shit on our governors yeah absolutely and one you're okay I grew up in Jersey so I think real New Yorkers might have a little bit of an issue with that statement but um, I do live in New York now 
And um, in terms of my sports teams, it's it's pretty ridiculous. You did just use proper, though. So might I remind your audience that you did grow up for at least part of your life in the UK, my friend. So uh, you're very, very California, but still some shades come out from time to time. Which is... Is there anything more New Yorker or Californian than claiming you're from the place but truly not being from the place? Yeah. I think we've just only proven my point here. Yeah, right, exactly. It's 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 circular. Uh, uh, oh, I miss being kept this honest. Wow. Um, <laughs> let's, let, let's turn the heat towards um, Cuomo. So Cuomo, at this point, like, when we were going to do this, like, a couple of times a while ago, there were different categories where, like, there were the Cuomo scandals that related to his handling of COVID-19. There were the Cuomo scandals that related to, you know, just self-promotion and self-dealing around his book, around the bridge that's named after his, like, dad, right? Which is one of the more ridiculous things I find in American politics. And then, of course, there's the scandals around, like, um, there are sexual assault, sexual misconduct scandals within um, Cuomo's office, it seems. And there were, it seems like he created this workplace of intimidation and of fear. And so... All of those scandals seemed to happen. It seemed like there were calls from there were calls from resignation from folks like Chuck Schumer from AOC. And instead of, you know, this seemed like at least maybe two months ago, something that was really maybe had some legs or had some steam to it, at least from an outsider not living in the state. But it seemed like Andrew Cuomo used the opportunity to all of a sudden discover progressivism and did a couple of things that would make it so the New York Times headlines would be uh, Cuomo legalizes marijuana or Cuomo, all these other different things. So as a New Yorker, as someone who's been paying a lot of close attention to these things, how has the like rapid amnesia of Cuomo's record versus how it seems to be like we've moved on from this felt from your perspective? I mean, all great points, and your perspective on it is is exactly the reality, right? I mean, Cuomo has been aggressively anti-leftist for his entire dictatorial, essentially, uh, tenure as governor of this state. I mean, he is a lot like Trump, except just with a blue uh, dot next to his name. He was born into immense privilege, as you mentioned, Dan. Uh, his father was the governor of New York State, and his governor was no Bernie. Sa- I mean, his father was no Bernie Sanders, but um, he was a significantly better, I think, human being than Andrew Cuomo. Um, and so, uh, Cuomo's entire time in office has been um, basically an effort to handicap the left. So he was in- in- instrumental in the uh, creation and upholding of this ca- uh, caucus inside of the state legislature called the IDC which was a caucus of Democrats who voted pretty much every time with Republicans. So you'd have people, regular constituents, who weren't, I guess, paying as close attention to state politics, and this is what uh, Cuomo preyed upon, they were voting blue down the ballot every single time. But they didn't know that their representative, their state rep, was a part of this caucus that was just going to go in and vote with Republicans. So even though this is such a blue state, and the state legislature was overwhelmingly blue, um, you know, nothing would get done. And Cuomo wanted it that way. He wanted it that way. Now flash forward to the election of Ocasio-Cortez, right? The campaign of Cynthia Nixon, which was in large part born out of AOC's popularity and just the, the explosion after she won. And Cynthia Nixon lost very handily to Andrew Cuomo. Cuomo's name and just his presence over the state, it just cannot be overstated. It is massive. He is 
uh, has his influence felt all over the place. He's like an old school mob boss in the way he operates, just speaking of Trump, but he's a lot more competent. <laughs> and um, But the good thing about Cynthia Nixon is that she actually galvanized a lot of progressives and they were finally able to primary and oust the IDC. But Cuomo was still, through all of this, still trying to block progressive legislation, but then COVID hits. He is heralded as a national hero, partly because Trump is saying nothing. He's saying dick. He's saying misinformation. And the, 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 the crisis is the worst it is in, at this point in the country in New York. It is the ground zero for COVID. But, but uh, Andrew Cuomo is doing an excellent job of handling the situation and making sure that the public knows he's handling the situation by doing some casual press hits on his brother's uh, the, 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 the primetime talk show that his brother happens to host on Absolutely. one of the nation's biggest cable networks. Yes. Um, and I'm just setting the table for this all to just, you know, come together. Right. So he exactly his his approval rating skyrocket. Everyone thinks he's going to run for president in 2024 on the Democratic ticket. Keep in mind, all of this other self-dealing had already happened. His top aide had gone to prison for corruption. He himself was investigated for corruption and he worked to shut that investigation down. But he gets this big lift. All the while, this dude was covering up over half of the nursing home COVID deaths based on his decision to shuttle COVID positive nursing home patients back into nursing homes. Now, that's, that killed tens of thousands of people. And then he covered it up and tried to strong arm people into hiding it. But he was always a sexual predator too. So then after this comes out, a lot of his sexual harassment and even assault allegations come out. He, um, I mean, all of this is alleged, I should say, but, you know, it was an open secret that Cuomo behaved as a dictator, as I said, as a bully and a toxic work environment that, you know, even people who I know in my life who are true blue Democrats were like, no, 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 he is an objectively bad guy. And it all comes crashing down on him. And then all the the, the nursing home COVID deaths break uh, in the news and the sexual harassment, which seems to bother people more, which I understand is a big issue, but the death cover-up's a little bit bigger in my view. Um, And so what has he got to do? He's got to go crawling back to that state legislature who could impeach him now. So he doesn't have the IDC as a fail-safe. And he does things like legalize uh, sports gambling on his own terms, which is I quibble with. We'll see how that ends up. Um, Legalizes marijuana with a decent bill, by the way, that... um, is more progressive than other states um, like Massachusetts. And then, of course, you know, just a few other things like uh, curbing uh, solitary confinement, etc. So there are a few things he tries to throw out there. And it's worked. (laughs) His approval ratings have not really gone down or disapproval ratings have not gone up. His approval ratings have not. And and he's just treading water. I think he's going to stay until 2022, which is nuts. (laughs) But I think that's the reality because honestly, and we'll get into this with California. I'm sorry for talking for so long. I just wanted to kind of lay out the whole narrative. Yeah. Um, State parties, I would say state democratic parties, and I would put California there and I put Massachusetts there as we saw with Alex Morse 
And I put New York may be the worst, but California is pretty bad, too, because just of the sheer size of the state and the fact that these are blue states and they largely don't have challengers. And when they do, the Republican is just like a, a, a Mitt Romney type or, you know, just somebody somebody who is uh, a kind of corporate <laughs> Democrat on the national stage, basically. Um, he's like a Mark Warner with an R next to his name. And so um, the, 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 they become incredibly insular, these state parties in these large states um, where they don't really have a, a ton of challenge to their power and they get very corrupted. And Andrew Cuomo is a huge, huge example of that. Thank you for giving that full illustration for the audience. I think it's really good to have that full picture because another reason i like and we'll get to more of this phenomenon later on in a different part of the segment but um i like about having the show is to be able to take a step back from all the news that's happening to get a start to finish picture of like how we got to where we are today and i think that along with the california what's going on in california really paints an excellent picture of not just how um andrew cuomo particularly was able to navigate all of these scandals um my favorite thing about this is that he mostly didn't want the story about the nursing home deaths to come out because at the same time he was doing a book tour about how he, Andrew Cuomo, successfully handled and solved COVID. The book to be released, what, in like September or October of 2020 before wave, like what, three or four hit New York? It, it's yes. only funny and so gallows humor because it's cartoonish the way that he thought he would be able to um, oh, but it's going to be good for my publicity. The way it's going to be, it's going to work totally fine for that. But like what I'm trying to say is that it gets to the way power works. It gets to how. I'm, I was just trying to look up the name of his book. Sorry. It's uh, American. Wait, hold on. Where's my right, camera? Yep, there you go. American Crisis Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. <laughs> Andrew Cuomo. Oh. And then apparently book sales just plummeted after this news broke. Duh. Go on, Dan. No, but like it just goes to show not just that, yes, people always talk about, oh, there are these super powerful people and they like don't do any like they don't care about the people they represent. No, they actively deal in power in such a way that they feel like they can use these different moves as like a smokescreen to actively convince uh, people who vote for them that things are actually going OK. They're doing the right things. It. I'm glad that we do have at least a media apparatus that can report on these things. You know, we complain about New York Times and legacy media so often, but they caught Cuomo in 4K so hard. But at the same time, they're also participating in the sort of image massaging campaign. I think largely because they like to be able to have the access to these governor's offices, to these Democratic parties, because they can very easily turn off that access in response, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, I want to touch on your point about legacy media and its role, because, you know, I think like there are a lot of online lefty uh, commentators who love to just paint with the broadest brush possible. And just as always, the truth is a lot more complicated than is portrayed. I mean, so, <laughs> yes, New York Times got the Iraq war wrong. Yes, they the editorial board is incredibly entrenched in establishment and up its own butt, you know, whatever. And they are biased towards centrism and, and center-left Democrats. I mean, that, that's obvious. Go on, I'll add that I'll, I was just going to add that the New York Times and a loss of legacy media is also reflective of a certain 
uh, class within society that I think is very, very far removed from the average experiences of like working people and, and a lot of different examples. But I didn't want to do it. So, no, uh, no, no. I mean, yeah. it's a, we talk about the, the Democrats being the managerial class. I mean, the, the this is like a, um, a, a manifestation of that and their academic elites. And it's a lot of things that you can critique them on. But there is, and I, 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 I actually remember uh, my, my late friend Michael Brooks making this point a lot. There is an important place for legacy media and for outlets that do objective reporting um, and that have the resources that Washington Post and the New York Times do, for example. And the Washington Post, after these stories of sexual harassment and assault broke, were able to speak to dozens of women, and many of them corroborated this account. And the fact that these papers have the resources to do that, this is why we're constantly calling on them to be better. So they'll always have their pitfalls, and the truth will be very complicated in that, in that way. But um, there is a real role for them. And so that's why holding them accountable and critiquing them in a constructive way is really important. I 100% agree. There's, you have to be right and like direct with the critiques. There's many of them to be there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say there's no reason to critique the New York Times, but you have to be direct with them. I think over a period of time, because for a long period of time, to be fair, these legacy media outlets were making the same mistakes. I think liberals and leftists got sort of uh, rhythmic and got into patterns with their critiques instead of actually paying attention to what was happening in any given situation. But I, I think we'll definitely hit on more of that later. I, I want to get into my boy Gavin Newsom. And, yes. Um, I, I just want to say the word rhythmic is just like a perfect ex- explanation for it. But, but yes. Yeah, I think that was the most respectful way I can put mm-hmm. it. Because it's, it's, it's a pattern. It's like anytime we get into patterns of behavior, we know it's, it's muscle easy. memory. Like, it's it's so it, it rolls off the tongue to call like a Bush and Obama war criminals, right? But right. like it, it, not everyone is a war criminal just because you disagree with them, for example. But l- let's go into my boy Gavin Newsom. Um, Emma, you remember Ben Mankiewicz, right? Good good friend, all around decent. Yes, person. I I, d- I dearly love Ben. I mean, he's just like such a great guy. Yeah, we um, everyone loves Ben's stories too, right? Because Ben Mankiewicz, Mankiewicz is a family of stories. But um, here's Mank? one of my the movie. <laughs> Not not saying anything, just saying they're they're not yeah. paying for any sponsorships. That's all I'll be saying. But the one of my favorite stories of Ben Mankiewicz personally was one time when I was sitting in TYT, and um, I don't know why, but he's talking maybe with Michael Shore or someone else. I think Dave Kohler is involved, and for some reason the topic of Gavin Newsom comes up, and Ben Mankiewicz does in his you know sort of smooth way, you know. The first thing I like to say and introduce Gavin Newsom with and explain to you the kind of person is, is that he slept with his best friend's wife. And that's like, that's the perfect intro I'd like to give into Gavin Newsom, because even though that's not the beginning of the story, that's not the end of the story. I think the fact that, yes, um, when he was running for mayor in San Francisco in 2007, 2008, I believe, the fact that his sex scandal was with his campaign manager's wife, almost more than anything else I'm about to tell you, tells you what you need to know about Gavin Newsom. He's that kind of guy. Um, we should also say, formerly married to Kimberly Guffoyle. That <laughs> needs to be the context, too. That's very important. Kimberly Guffoyle definitely has a type. coked out, you know, oh yeah, the, the greased hair, that's the number one thing for her. It's got He's got to look like the sleaziest used car salesman in history, and then she's all on board. Yeah. Anyone who wants to buy a Saturn Aveo comes to get any one of Kimberly Guilfoyle's significant others. But 
the, the I think <laughs> the more serious way, I guess, to kind of start the like Gavin Newsom story is essentially with the fact that the, there have basically been four families that have controlled California politics for the past like 60 years or so. There's the Brown, there was Pat Brown, who was the governor, and then Jerry Brown, who was the governor twice in California. And these were once in the 80s and again in the um, 2010s, just before Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom served the second time as lieutenant governor. Um, there's the John family from which Nancy Pelosi comes. Um, there's a connection between um, John Pelosi and William Newsom. Um, and William Newsom's been like a big, the Newsom family is big in California. They donate a lot to the Democratic Party. There's a big like relationship between the Pelosi's. And of course, there's the Gettys who are related to this. Um, there's in Los Angeles, people know of the Getty Center, the Getty Villa, a bunch of things named Getty because they're very rich and very entrenched in the Democratic Party. Um, you have a bunch of different random connections here, but basically, um, Gavin is adopted essentially by the Getty family and is at a young age entrenched in these political circles and is in this kind of context where he's learning how uh, backroom deals and wheeling and dealing gets made. And so he becomes governor, I mean, he becomes mayor of San Francisco and he gets seen as a fairly progressive person then. You know, um, San Francisco is trying to be a trailblazer in gay rights and that's like a very good thing that was happening there. Gavin Newsom tried to be on the forefront of that on environmental issues. But he was still not quite the roll up your sleeves, uh, put on the bootstraps, even uh, civil organizer that Barack Obama was pretending to be during the first go around of his administration. Gavin Newsom was always very much like the pinstripe suit, like we're alluding to greasy hair, slick back um, politician. And so fast forward to him getting governorship. Him being a California governor was honestly up until COVID-19 going pretty decently. Um, as you know, with governors, there's things you complain about, things you don't. But even the usual Republican bugaboos in California of like property taxes and environmentalism, there seemed to be kind of a cool off period with that. Even though there were wildfires here that were raging through the state, Gavin Newsom's response to that against Pacific Gas and Electric, the utilities that were um, against, were largely responsible for those fires, uh, Gavin Newsom got a lot of praise for that. Then we enter COVID-19, which seems to be like where a lot of these things go into complete disarray. And you had an instance where Gavin Newsom is using this opportunity, kind of like Andrew Cuomo did, to capitalize on the political opportunity that's presented by Donald Trump being anti-science against uh, masking um, mandates and things like that, by saying Gavin Newsom and Oregon and Washington will form a separate alliance of states that will follow the science, do smart mask mask mandates, and will handle COVID-19. Gavin Newsom did daily updates about what people should and shouldn't be doing and what masks they should and shouldn't be wearing, all while, meanwhile, routinely breaking all of the things he was saying day by day. It finally caught up to him when he um, was caught at a restaurant known as French Laundry, super swanky, no one was wearing masks. This was in the summer during the peak of the pandemic. And honestly, if I'll pause here, because I know I've also talked a lot, I I wasn't even the most mad at this because California's recall system, I'm not going to go into that, but it's it kind of been a bugaboo of California politics for a while. It's alarmingly, not easy, but recall efforts happen against politicians in California and governors in California all the time. Most notable recall election was in the early 2000s against Governor Davis. Republicans successfully recalled him and replaced him with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Republicans' relationships to um, celebrities, the rest is history. And it's also a little bit of foreshadowing. But 
there has been an effort to recall Gavin Newsom since the day he was elected, purely because he's a Democratic um, politician. And that's not to defend Gavin Newsom, that's just to say that Republicans are going to act um, in any way, in any measure, in opposition to the Democrats. They're not trying to work in any kind of way to compromise. It's always going to be in opposition. They finally got their moment when it was the perfect time of people being antsy in their homes, um, people not liking that Donald Trump on the one hand was telling people to live freely and do whatever they want to, and Gavin Newsom on the other hand was nannying people and telling people to stay inside, wear their mask, and enforcing court curfews. Meanwhile, you had this image of him breaking a lot of his policies. So as far as public opinion goes, that was just like a nail in the coffin. But for progressives, you'll notice that um, during the COVID-19 pandemic, when a lot of California was closing down, Gavin Newsom took the time to approve fracking, um, new fracking contracts in the state of California, even though Gavin Newsom had run against a pro-environmentalist, um, climate change forward kind of politician. He thumbs up a lot of fracking deals. Again, this will be important later. Um, one of Gavin Newsom's companies, a California winery with 14 employees, received a um, paycheck protection loan of nearly $1 million. Uh, his other businesses received an additional $2 million combined. So it's definitely like licking off the plate there. And then now uh, that the recall has reached the number of signatures that's required for it, now that you have literally 150 people running for office, uh, that celebrity strategy that has worked so well in California, again, I'm not just talking about the governor, I'm also talking about Ronald Reagan, who successfully was uh, ran as a governor um, in California as a Republican, and then went to be the president. It looks like Caitlyn Jenner is the newest pick and the likely, well, maybe front runner, I don't know, against Gavin Newsom. And oh, would you look at that? <laughs> Almost the week after this happens, Gavin Newsom tries to double down on his COVID um, like visibility, saying like California's standing ahead in the nation in solving COVID-19. He's calling for fracking bans in California all of a sudden, now that there's a lot of attention on him and there might be a recall effort and Gavin Newsom might even be losing progressive support. He's issued a fracking ban that would only take place after 2024 and still has a bunch of exemptions, whatever. But already there's a lot of patterns of, yes, it's not exactly like a sexual assault scandal as far as we know of right now, but there's a pattern of democratic politicians acting the way they were supposed to act based on how they campaigned, but only when it's in trouble for them. Um, so have you liked watching the fires uh, from across the country? <laughs> As it's well, going on I mean, here. I definitely don't like it. I mean, I, I think the parallels, as you mentioned, and why, you know, I think you were so smart to draw these two together, um, it's, it's inescapable, right? Um, and what's so, in, like, just infuriating about it is that these are two states where you could get progressive legislation through and you could have the courage of your convictions and use the bully pulpit as governor uh, in, in a very blue state. But what happens? Power trends towards right-wing uh, wielding, right? And it At concentrates. And concentrates, right. And it's corporatist, which is, you know, one and the same in this country. And uh, it's it, only when um, these governors feel like they can't hide it anymore do they try to act in the interests of the people? Now, I want to ask you about Caitlyn Jenner, because to me, I don't even think she's, she does not seem handpicked by the Republican Party in California to me. I mean, she went on Sean Hannity and embarrassed herself. I've never seen such a shallow person in my life. And 
I uh, I will admit I watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians, uh, so I am familiar with Caitlyn Jenner in ways that I I, I I'm not necessarily proud of. Um, I I have a little bit of a junk reality TV thing when I'm not watching sports. Um, so <laughs> so she is like one of the most vapid people in the world, um, and I, I would be shocked that if the actual California Republican Party is genuinely invested in her because. She goes on Sean Hannity and is talking about how her friend in the nearby airplane airplane hangar is moving to Arizona because they can't stop looking at homeless people. And yeah, that's standard Republican hatred and, you know, shaming of poor people. But she's not smart and doesn't have any political talents. And she's, you know, she's not even charismatic in the way Trump was, for example. There's a better celebrity. There's got to be a better celebrity. No, I'm... There's a lot you said there, and there's a lot of good points there. Um, I will say, for starters, all the things you said about lack of charisma, lack of political know-how and talent, none of those things are things that have stopped politicians before. None of those things are things that have stopped successful politicians before. I will absolutely concede the point that Caitlyn Jenner is not an adept politician and would need a lot of political training in order to do this, and never mind the indictment on our system that it is, that you can essentially just be a wealthy celebrity, wealthy enough to have some um, hanger mates who you can talk shop about politics and taxes with, um, as you're like alluding to earlier. Never mind that indictment of the system. But the people that are surrounding Caitlyn Jenner currently are like Trump campaign runoffs. They're people from the Trump world who are, I'll, I'll posit this question to you. Yes us as like people who pay attention to these things is very smart, um, would think, no, the Republicans couldn't possibly think they could run this candidate, right? But we also know the Republicans are incredibly cynical politically as they think. And they do really believe that, oh, in California, it's going to potentially like, I don't think, I don't know if they'll believe that she'll, like, Caitlyn Jenner will win the trans vote or anything. I unfortunately don't think that the trans vote in California will, like, make or break anything in any direction, unfortunately. It's just, like, not that big of a voting block. But the Republicans look for figureheads, and they look for cover. Who better to act as a cover for all the anti-LGBTQ things that the Republicans are going to try to put forward in California than Caitlyn Jenner? Who better to act as like a uh, yes. shield for some of these things, right? Well, I mean, I, we actually talked about this a little bit on the Majority Report, uh, Casual Friday. Not sure when this will air, but today. Um, and I, I maybe was too uh, concrete in my assertion that the Republicans are, I don't think, are that wholeheartedly behind her because you're making a lot of like excellent points. Um, but we, we were also just talking about how uh, the Republicans want to run Herschel Walker um, against Raphael Warnock when that comes around, right? This is another shallow, cynical ploy because they see that Raphael Warnock is a black man uh, who is a senator from Georgia, and they feel that, oh, we got to get our own black man, and he's a celebrity, and so we can essentially trick people into voting for us. I mean, that's really how they think. Um, I, I, I just, ooh, Caitlyn Jenner. She's gotten like zero brain cells to rub together. Um, and so there's a part of me that just really thinks that there aren't Republicans that even want to be in the same room as her. But do they even want to be in the same room as Herschel Walker? Probably not either. Um, this might just be the next evolution of that uh, very, very cynical ploy. It, it reminds me of, I'm forgetting her name right now, but there was 
maybe not a Republican, but a very corporate Democrat who has run against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, for her like re-election. Um, yeah, she was a former CNBC anchor and um, I, Maria, I'm blanking on it, but she, but she got a ton of uh, money thrown into her campaign. It was ridiculous, but yeah, but also it, it, the money didn't really yield in any votes per se. AOC still won that pretty handedly. It wasn't like a close race from what I remember, right? So no, yeah, I think. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was just gonna say, like, obviously, we, it's apples and oranges to compare like New York fourteen to how um, Californians might vote in a gubernatorial snap race, but you also have the thing that like <laughs> the ballot will literally look like this. Question one. Do you believe in a recall against Gavin Newsom? Yes or no? Question two. If you voted yes, who do you want? And it's going to be literally five pages, a hundred plus names in like eight point font of all the people you want to vote for. And what the Democrats are going to have to bet on is that they can hold the state essentially and keep people appeased through this lockdown through the summer, essentially. Um, and hopefully hold off that recount effort, which would, I mean, the recall effort, which would likely happen in November this year. All the Republicans have to do, it's, it's a very crowded field, that's definitely working against them, but all Republicans have to do is just excite their base enough. And like, I want, I, I don't even want to use Caitlyn Jenner as the example, it's like the sexy example because like she's a celebrity and a lot of people have like strong opinions about it. Um, my strong opinion is that Ice Cube should just run as governor. I think that'd be a very entertaining thing to watch those debates personally. But the Republican Party is going to try to unseat Gavin Newsom and maybe it's not Caitlyn Jenner that they used to do that, but they have a lot of these strategies here and I think one of them is going to stick because they're sticking to celebrity. They are supporting Donald Trump over Liz Cheney and that sort of value side of the party. They're going to stick with celebrity and power and xenophobia so long as they can retain power to um, perpetuate more xenophobia. So I don't know if I can like make a call off of this for sure, but it's something I'm definitely taking seriously and not like as fully as a joke as a lot of people say. Yeah, I mean, I, I think underestimating the Republican Party uh, is not a good idea. Um, they can wield cynicism in a way that has been incredibly effective. And as you mentioned, celebrity. Uh, your, history, your state has a significant history with that. Here on the shill corner of this episode, there's been a lot of conversation on the left more broadly about how to tackle the Joe Biden administration, both covering it and reacting to it, because there are a lot of people who were excited by politics by the Trump administration because it was such a reactionary administration. It caused a lot of people who were um, like, you know, good in their hearts and intentions to react to it in a lot of different ways. And especially in retrospect now, the idea that you were able to unite such a broad coalition of like capital L liberals with leftists and socialists and people who consider themselves more red and like Marxist philosophies for things like um, uniting against the Muslim ban or um, at least the rhetoric around immigration at the border. It, it seems like we're having to transition to a time as like people who watch politics to understand a new type of administration where like the rules are different, kind of the rules have changed. At least I know from covering or passively paying attention to the Biden administration over the past over 100 days or so, that there's a lot of things different. The 
Biden administration's done a pretty good job of not giving the media things to play around with and run for in cycles. I'm starting to feel like we have actual news cycles again and that things can last longer than 24 hours simply because everyone's stretching things. But I want to know some of like your observations since you covered um, the later term of the Obama years, the Trump years, and now some of this. How does this feel like from a news covering perspective, from a news watching perspective? How does it feel comparing the Biden administration to the Trump administration? Yeah, and it's so interesting because when I started in this industry, um, Obama was still the president and you had WikiLeaks coming out, right? And, um, well, whatever, I won't get into it, but the person I was working with at the time was a very sensationalist person who wanted to squeeze everything out. Um, And a lot of the coverage was the incentive structure. What that introduced me to, and I hope this isn't too navel-gazy because I just want to talk about left media a little bit. Um, No, go ahead. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the incentive structure um, is not good. And that was the first time I was introduced to it. And it wasn't, um, it's something that sat right with me, but I did it. It was my first job. Uh, I was trying to work my way up, right? And, you know, covering WikiLeaks, there was a lot of interesting information about Hillary Clinton in, in there. But then it started to be just stretching some information, right? And then you have to think about the broader picture of what, that kind of coverage serves. And at 22 years old, I wasn't really (laughs) aware of that, right? But um, then Trump, of course, put everything into focus for people. And as you mentioned, a lot of people on the incredibly broad left to center were united in being basically outraged by this person. Not that he didn't pick off a lot of people, um, but I think a lot of the people that he picked off were cynics in and of themselves. And um, I think that some of the coverage that was being done a bit irresponsibly about someone like Hillary Clinton, even though there was a hundred million things to critique her on, the um, kind of obsessive coverage of her, which was also tainted with sexism, some of which I've seen shades of with Elizabeth Warren and I was supported Bernie Sanders, but Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, that was seeing that up front in my coverage of her and knowing her a little bit when she was running and, and, and being friendly with people around her and her herself. I mean, that seeing it explode the way it did, um, that, that, I guess that opened my eyes. So point being, not to meander too much, um, the, the Trump-focused left media and people on the left in general, as you've mentioned. And now a lot of the tendencies that I saw during the um, – 2016 election are returning, but people are kind of scattered and don't know what to do about it. And so um, I think it's really easy to get caught up in the sugar high of critiquing the Biden administration in a non-constructive sensationalist way and making some actions seem more dire than they necessarily are and not putting proportionality in, in in your coverage. Um, but I don't think it's having the sticking power that it did with Hillary Clinton, even though a lot of people are using the same playbook. I mean, obviously Jimmy Dore is the number one example, but there are other people who do it. And, um, it's one, it's sexism. (laughs) And two, it's, I, I think people are so tired from the Trump administration that sensationalist coverage of Biden is just like, this guy's so boring and you can't let everything becomes sensationalist about Biden because everything was 
nuts under Trump. People are tired. And so when you continue to do that and drum things up, it actually has a really negative effect because there are immense outrages, not as many, but really outrageous things that Biden has done or has not done. For example, the fact that he has not canceled $1 of student loan debt is absolutely insane. Could it's it insane. He could do it with a stroke of a pen. And it is a commitment to this old school perception of debt because he's from Delaware and that was the credit card state. And that's his just ideology. And it's sick. Okay, that is a sick thing that's a, that the Biden administration has not done yet. The fact that he basically came out and said, oh, we're ending uh, support for Saudi Arabia's offensive operations in the genocide slash war in Yemen, but uh, we're still going to help support them in the blockade. Now, there's really no difference in between the two of those things. We are still supporting not out front and not as brazenly, but we are still supporting Saudi Arabia financially and thus supporting the genocide slash war in Yemen. I mean, there are countless things. There are a lot of things that you can critique the Biden administration on. And I shouldn't say countless things. There are a lot. There were countless under Trump, and that was part of the dynamic that we're talking about. But when you're in this independent left space, there's a purity thing, right? If you're not saying everything is the most outrageous, then you are not the best of the best. But really, the people who are making it the most sensationalist are not acting in good faith, they may have convinced themselves that they are, but what they're doing is they're chasing the dragon. They're chasing that old framework from 2016 where, and, with Hillary Clinton, and it's just not working anymore because of a lot of the dynamics I mentioned. And to make it more tangible, and I think applicable, not just even on the left, but in the right-wing media, because I'm making a whole video about like, um, I'm tying the idea of like these grifters on the internet in political space, but also I would have considered Donald Trump a grifter before the 2016 election. Um, he would go around doing these get rich quick seminars, like basically doing talk versions of the art of the deal to um, people who would give like hundreds of dollars just to have a seat in some convention center somewhere to listen to Donald Trump speak. Like that's a form of grifting. I think it's definitely connected to this idea of the American dream that we are taught with as like sort of like a group religion that goes around, right? But like even to make it more applicable, the incentives within our social media platforms, like they incentivize, as we've seen, because like we've made videos and we see the numbers behind this. We see the sensational stuff like the Trump things that gets people to react and engage more. And then that tells the algorithm to show it to more people. So there's like a positive feedback loop behind that. Whereas if you cover some of the underreported things that people aren't talking about, by definition, if people aren't talking about it, algorithms deprioritize it when people are searching it and then fewer people see it. So then as someone who has a limited number of hours in the day to produce things, even if you don't want to, some of your opinions and some of your like positions on what to cover get colored by that, unfortunately. And so there's like that side of things and like, you know, you make those decisions where you can. Maybe you trade your like, funny Ben Shapiro destroys video for like your like deep dive on like world political issues or something, right? Like you make those trade-offs here and there as business to do the thing. That's totally fine. What I'm talking about is the things that like the Republican Party has done so nakedly over the past four months with like turning cancel culture and Dr. Seuss and all these other different things into a major issue when it doesn't need to be. But I think like what you're saying, Emma, is that this is this need to continue the cash cow from the Trump administration, which isn't going to continue because there just aren't this much attention paid to this, these things, is 
it could be taken in a constructive way on the left, whereas this is such a unique time to teach people about these deeper dive subjects. I like how in the majority report, there are people who are guests on who may not have to do directly with like the news of the day, but it's a deeper dive into a subject that you can understand from the left and a broader intersectionality of how these issues affect people's lives and why they're systemic needs to have a systemic response to those issues, right? Don't say but, intersectionality. I guess, you know, you're too woke for for some people on the left, I guess. Keep oh, going. yeah, of course. Can't even do that. But like, yeah. that, it, it even goes to say there's people, because, and this is something I've wrestled with too, the downside of having an independent media space where there isn't, things are more decentralized, coincides with the fact that, ind- I mean, Legacy media has had a trust issue, and so people are turning to alternative media because they trust it more. But what's backing that trust? What is to say, other than like common sense, that you, Emma Vigland, are more factually reputable than Tim Pool, for example? You're both on YouTube, right? You could put on a beanie one day, and who knows? I'm, I'm, I would not insult you like that. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, beanies do not look good on me, by the way. I'm not a, not a beanie, beanie lady. Uh, I they don't look good on Tim Pool either, though, let's be real. Tim Pool, like lady killer Tim Pool. <laughs> I, I, I have to send you that clip if I haven't already of Tim Pool talking about how much of a ladies man he is and how he like murders the social the dating apps. Oh yeah, man. I'm sure she loves that skate park that you built in your backyard or whatever the hell that is. Talk about the skate park on the back of his head. That hairline's ridiculous. Anyways, the <laughs> the point I was trying to get here is that the incentives within the platforms that we have to use to disseminate information are all kind of messed up and that it it presents the people on these other side with um, interesting ways of going about that. I guess I'll skip ahead to something I think is relevant to this because another thing you mentioned in addition to like the incentives you have as a creator is like your experience, you along with um, Aida Chavez, who was at the Intercept at the time, but is now at The Nation, were like two of the first people in any kind of media to put like kind of an eye on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when she was running um, in New York 14, that kind of fairly early on. And so you've gotten to see this sort of AOC being attacked from pretty much all sides. Like, of course, from the right who similarly in 2018, 2020 would just throw up an article on Fox News, get it aggregated on every single other website, and then to just get all this hate from the right. And now in the absence of a Trump to hit, then get for views. There are people on the left who are going after AOC for, there's a space to go after AOC for legitimate um, criticisms and thinking that she shouldn't go far enough. I think I might do that in a moment here, but it's this, I just can't imagine, you mentioned the tensions of sexism there, but I just can't imagine what it's like to see that complete arc and rise of someone who was the underdog, who was cheered on by this left broadly to watching this left, okay, these People are like, actually good faith. These people are trying to make money off of your name. And then these are the Republicans who are never going to work with you anyways. That's what you just have to wake up to. I wonder if like you would give some insight into maybe like that space that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is operating in as like a legislator, but also answering to the left as like the figure she's like kind of become. Well, I mean, there's so much there, right? And I guess I can only just speak to my kind of personal um, opinions on the matter. Um, You know, I don't really know what's going through her head, um, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I, when she was the object of this, like, incredibly sexualized, violent, horrible 
attention. Can't say violence. Yeah, I guess I can't say that. You know, like, seriously, fuck everybody on the left that doesn't recognize that. I mean, it was it was so obvious, and a lot of these creators who don't get it are men, but, I mean, they are ostensibly on the left, and they should be able to understand that when you talk about this politician, this is not talking about representative from Minnesota 8 who no one knows. She is someone who is broader, and so much about her is sexualized, and there's so much violence. I mean, remember that ICE meme page that came out? where they were uh, these ICE agents sharing a uh, image of her being force, uh, forcibly giving Donald Trump, uh, it was a cartoon, uh, oral sex. <clears throat> it was a sexual assault and they were laughing about it. I mean, this is the kind of thinking and it's not just in ICE, it's all throughout the right wing space. Sam always says this, they've studied Al Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's name recognition and it's a lot more... Um, the, the numbers are higher with right-wingers, with Republicans, than it is with Democrats, the amount of recognition, because there is a lot of complex uh, sexual hatred and violence that is latent in the conversation about it, and uh, racism as well. And so you have to have that context when talking about her and the amount of baggage that that carries. And yes, she's a person in power, but she's also a person. And I like to... Um, imbue my coverage uh, of her about that because it's a lot to shoulder. And now, turning it back to a media critique. There are a lot of people on the left who may, if they wanted to think about this a little more deeply, understand this, but, you know, they get the views when they talk about her. And so, it doesn't matter if they're kind of nitpicking and actually undercutting this rising star of the left. I mean, as a society, we love to build people up and tear people down. And the left's doing that right now to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she's done disappointing things. I do not, um, I, I, I will not defend her on everything. And I think she's been silent more recently. But part of that too is because it's like, can she win? No, no, she can't win. And she's trying to wield her power intelligently. And it's really easy for people on the outside to critique that, especially when they're being misled by creators who want to ride off of this fury of sexualized obsession with her and get views. And I think it's despicable that there are a lot of people on the left who engage in that with complete recklessness um, in order to achieve short-term gains. And that's also why I'm so grateful to be a part of the majority report. Sam is not interested in short-term sugar highs. We wouldn't interview, you know, experts on, uh, ju uh, judicial philosophy, like we did the other day for 45 minutes in the first hour of the show. I'm excited, the for case. I'm excited for COVID to be over so Sam can bring back tort week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Well, I, I, that, that actually, I can't even talk to him about tort. <laughs> he is obsessed. He goes to a conference about it. Well, I mean, you, not you know the reason Sam is obsessed with torts, because like the moment he posts torts video on YouTube, the views just rake in. Like, yeah, I, that's oh, a right. cash cow. Of course, like I would be obsessed with torts too if I knew what that did. Exactly. But like right? it goes the, to your point. The incentive structure. I mean, Sam can't stop talking about torts. Everyone wants to have sex with torts. Keep going. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying it goes to your point about like, there's a way to look at the incentive structure and go, no, I understand the incentive structure and I might take a hit here, but this is important to the people who do see this. For the, like it does get out there. Um, and yeah, there's like, 
I'm wrestling with this too, because as someone like who's been on the left for, I'd say like a lot of my political awakening life. And by being on the left, I mean that it's not just like something I identify with online in a video context just to get views. I mean, like there's a fundamentally way, humanist way I think of when I wake up in the morning, when I'm interacting with people, when I'm not interacting with people, what I'm thinking about interacting with people in the future, right? Like that's just who I am. There's a lot of ways to think about that in the context of how it has manifested in power today. Like, what does the left's power look like? Especially in the Senate, nothing except really Bernie Sanders. And in the House, there's this, like, quote-unquote squad that has been built around Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but also includes Ilhan Omar and um, Rashida Tlaib, and now includes Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush, and it's going to continue to grow and grow. And so the other side to this is that, Emma, you and I have both have been paying attention to politics, especially for this era, and we can see certain similarities between Biden's administration right now and Obama's administrations, not just in the ways that Biden administration is acting like Obama's administration, because half the same people are there, but in the ways the Republican Party is reacting to it, with Mitch McConnell even saying that um, his number one goal is to make sure Biden's legislative agenda fails completely, which echoes so eerily of Mitch McConnell saying nearly 10 years ago, his number one goal is to make Obama a one-term president. So again, bipartisanship out the door. In a rational world, Democrats would say, okay, gloves are off, socialism, baby. But like, we still have to play this song and dance because of President Joe Manchin, because of the almighty filibuster, and because of all these different structural rules that are put in place against a group of people like the left. So understanding that and understanding that from a high-level media context, I think there's a positive way to push progressives into power. And like, I'm not attacking nor defending these people, but I'd say an example of a positive way of doing this is when um, Kyle Kalinske, Cenk Uygur, and a couple of others uh, form justice Democrats to try to draft people around the country to run to the left and primary Democrats. So it's like using your power as um, political commentators and also like working in the space with actual political actors to get the attention on the issue and actually build power. I don't see any of that anymore. I, why don't, A, what I don't see, like Justice Democrats does its own thing. It doesn't need YouTubers to be fair, right? But I think it would be a useful bit of time for um, some attention to be placed on some of these races or some of these um, places where Democrats could possibly win and actually gain power. And to the flip side, the criticism of the squad is like, it, it's more just like, do something, what are you doing, your sellouts, as opposed to well, this is what the Republican Party did. They built the Tea Party caucus. They built a string of power. They just like refused to do things. They use obstruction to their advantage. For once, the left has some power. It doesn't make sense all the time. That, wasn't, that was why I wasn't on Team Force to Vote to begin with. But I am now increasingly on the side of, in the context of the Democrats maybe having one, two good bills left in them this legislative session before the midterms, I want to see the Tea Party of the left now. I want to see like AOC and Jamal Bowman actually gumming up things until they get their way. And this is kind of like a newer thing and it's an evolution of my like thought on the quote unquote force the vote thing. But I want to know what you think about trying to ride that balance between trust what they're doing on the left because we need to build power, but also the left needs to build power. It's go time and it's time to apply pressure. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly difficult, right? Um, I think you mentioned the filibuster and... Without filibuster reform, it's really difficult to 
build power internally in this way. Or without HR1 or SB1, to your point. Yes, without, exactly. But I mean, Manchin doesn't give a shit if if Republicans take power again, right? Cinema doesn't care. What's difficult about the filibuster, and I'll get back to the House in a second, is that you're asking Manchin and Cinema to create a rule that is against their own narcissistic interests. They want to be the kingmaker. They want the party to come to them. And so that they can say, okay, what do you need so we can get this piece of legislation through reconciliation? How can we make this happen? Cinema is more, you know, of a sociopath than Manchin. Manchin is just not very bright and he wants to position himself from a political branding exercise. So what he wants to do is uh, Biden proposes the corporate tax rate of 28 percent, which is, by the way, insane because we're just bringing it back up to a little bit before Trump slashed it should be back to 35 percent. Speaking of um, Obama and the way that the Republicans are approaching things. But uh, I mean, that's all Manchin wants to do is okay, I want to, I want to be the middle. Like I'm going to slice it. I want to, I want to be in a position where I can change it. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what my position was. He initially said he wanted $4 trillion in, in, uh, in infrastructure. But you know, when Biden proposed 2.4 or I'm sorry, 2.5 or I'm I'm forgetting the exact figure at the moment. Um, okay, cool. I'm going to cut it down from there. So then this is where the progressives come in. This is where they hold it hostage. (laughs) Make it as big as fucking possible. Make it as big as possible. Because when it goes to the Senate, you need to feed the beast of Joe Manchin and feed that guy's ego. Because he has shown, and I know cinema's a different person. I don't even know how to deal with a person who, who, in my view, seems to have some sort of questionable personality traits. I'm not going to diagnose her, but I mean, there's, there's a little something off. Um... But Manchin is a big target and somebody who I think can be moved because it's easier than someone like Lieberman from the Obama era, if we're comparing. Lieberman acted as a firewall for Wall Street and the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry, et cetera, as the senator from Connecticut. He, and and of course, being a pro-war advocate, (laughs) voting for the war, et cetera, but more specifically as it applied to Obamacare, for, for instance. He said, no, 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 I'm going to be this vote 60. By the way, you know, Democrats had had 60 votes at that point, but he was essentially saying, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to protect industry. I'm going to protect big pharma. I am going to protect Wall Street. And when you're getting paid to do that, it's a lot harder to move a guy like that. Manchin, yeah, he's paid off by coal and stuff like that. But mostly what he's doing is a personal branding exercise. He's trying to appear a certain way. That's malleable. So the point being, progressives in the House, your number one job is balloon this shit. Make it big. Because then it gets cut down. And we have two more reconciliation um, opportunities and so then it's the midterms and the Democrats are likely to lose the House. So time to get moving. And that's really what that would be my number one message. I, I love that because you really kind of underscore the seriousness of the situation. Like uh, because of the filibuster rules, because of all that, we maybe get one major bill and that might be infrastructure next year in the fiscal year. And then unless you can get some 
exemptions to the filibuster for voting rights or some other things. It's an uphill battle for everything. You have to apply pressure to Joe Manchin and the right relevant senators that are there. But also, like, not only is it that the midterms are coming, we've seen this dance before with Obama and the Democrats are likely to lose the midterms. We've seen this dance before and the Democrats are likely to lose a midterm just short after a census that was um, terrible from a perspective of making sure that the districts in the country are accurate and makes sense for how people can be represented. Um, a bunch of red states just gained more seats in the House. It's going to be, redistricting won't be as bad as like in the 2010s, right? But it's still going to be really hard for Democrats to retain power. Um, plus to mention like Dianne Feinstein could die at any moment. Like this, this point at which we have this majority is so fragile. So this is... Pa- and- uh, Patrick Leahy is also a tenuous health situation. And I don't like, mean to be morbid, but the the country is a tenuous health situation, right? Like we're very, very close to slipping back into like, I mean, I don't want to. You got attacked for drawing any kind of historical parallels, but like, it, it, in Germany, but right before World War II, like Hitler winning in the power in World War II, that was his second hurrah. He had had some first go before, and then he was laughed off as a figure. And people thought, okay, that's the end of Adolf Hitler, whatever, he's gone. But he still influenced the party, and then the party got into power again, and the rest is very much history. The, the, the seeds of that are happening right now with um, the Republican Party. They've abandoned that. They're the Trump Party now, and we all know where Trumpism goes. It's xenophobic. It goes to the Capitol insurrection. It's terrible. And Democrats are talking. They're talking as though they understand this from Joe Biden to Chuck Schumer understands that if they don't make broader, bigger issues that people can tangibly see, like they have bigger issues than just losing the majority or Democrats structural power. Just like the country's pretty gone at that point. Um, I appreciate that folks like Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer are saying this on recorded mediums now so that we can record them when things like go wrong and when they end up lying. But I think that also means that in the same ways that like the right-wing media would go, like the downside to your strategy of the left going really hard right now is that it'll give the right-wing media, which has been grasping at straws to cover anything, it'll give them meat. It'll say, look at the socialist program, they're trying to do $10 trillion in infrastructure, whatever large number that is accurate, but they should do. But I, too often, Democrats are like, oh no, the Republicans are going to respond. Guess we give up. No, you go 10 times harder and you just go like, a Tucker Carlson special of all of the decrepit nature in the cities that like the unhoused population. And instead of saying, oh, this is because these people are lazy and don't have jobs. No, this is what it looks like in democratic states and in Republican states when the government doesn't work for you. If they just use that narrative and go on the offense, then that's kind of what the Tea Party did. And whether it was right or wrong or whatever, it was definitely wrong in that case. It helped win them political support. And so I agree with you. Yeah, that's the issue, though, just with Democratic voters. I mean, they Democratic voters are less ideological, I think, than Republican voters. And they fetishize the idea of compromise, um, no matter what that is. They want their politicians to be, like, reasonable and academic or whatever the case may be, except for, you know, the left. But the, the, the cohort that the Democratic Party has courted is like a managerial white suburban type that likes more of those politics. I mean, Joe Biden's president. But, but would you think, and this would be like the prevalent response to this on the left, that when shown that these issues are even popular amongst the managerial PMC that we're talking about, things like from Medicare for all all the way down to um, gun reform, 
even if you sh- even if the left shows these things are popular, would the better instincts towards like pseudo cooperation overrule the Democrats, or would that possibly even ignite some of the more like PMCs and neoliberals to say? No, wait, we are, we do have popular policy positions. These are popular with the majority of the country. That's logical enough to me. Yeah, these people are to the left, but let's go for it. Like, I, I think people will j- get on a bandwagon with momentum potentially. I, I think they would, but you have the only way to start that momentum is by getting rid of the filibuster. And I just can't stress that enough. The only way for, for your, you know, listeners who, who may not fully know, I'm sure you've gone through it, but yeah. There are, you know, because Republicans didn't use a bill through reconciliation in the last fiscal year, the most recent bill that passed, the COVID stimulus, that can be used as the last fiscal year. Under reconciliation, this process that you only need 50 votes plus the tiebreaker and Kamala Harris to get, it needs to be pertaining to the budget. So that means gun control that Dan just mentioned, out the window. Um, that was why the, the $15 minimum wage was struck from the bill. Um, the PRO Act, which is going to support uh, labor throughout the country, no-go. The HR slash S1, which would combat gerrymandering and voter suppression throughout the country, which is integral to saving the country, as Dan said, no-go. So the filibuster, a lot of people in this country probably don't really even fully understand um, what it what it means and what it does and these arcane rules and that's of no fault of their own i mean the reason that it's in place is because it's specifically obtuse and arcane and then democrats like joe manchin hide behind that so they don't actually have to do anything that's part of what they are that's part of the role that they play so the ultimate amount of energy in order to just kind of prevent this slide towards insane Republican takeover is, in my view, to get rid of the filibuster. And it's becoming more urgent with every passing day. Since, to begin to like close down, since because Joe Biden won't get bit with a bug, or sorry, Joe Manchin won't get magically bit with a bug that makes him want to repeal the filibuster, are, are efforts like Bernie Sanders going down to West Virginia to talk about issues that Joe Manchin is against, is that sort of like soft power, something that the left should consider? Well, you know, I mean, Joe Manchin took out an, yes, I agree with Bernie Sanders' strategy there. I mean, to me, I think that Kamala Harris should be going as she did before the passage of the COVID relief bill. She went on West Virginia media and Arizona media to pressure Manchin and Cinema to vote yes. And it worked. Biden and Kamala Harris can use their power if they wish to do so. The question is, do they wish to do so? If there's a will, there should be a way. Um, And if the administration wants to basically strong arm them. I mean, remind these fuckers, you remember the Democratic Party, and in order to ensure that the Republican Party doesn't take over for, you know, another decade or so, and maybe end democracy, I mean, it it doesn't sound hyperbolic just based on how extreme they are. Uh, You got to help us pass this voting rights um, legislation. It's that dire. And so I, 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 I think that's what's needed. Uh, but, you know, that's like waiting for a water for water in desert, you know, Biden to play tough politics. It's, it's uh, with the Democrats. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, I mean, like, I still think it's I think if message the right way, if we weaponize Biden, because Biden, just as Cuomo, Newsom, every other politician we've had here has an ego and Biden's ego is legacy building, has been from day one. It's all Democratic politicians. I think we weaponize that. We weaponize his desire to supposedly stop creeping fascism. 
and combine it with all these other things, like using that to encourage some of these politicians to use their bully pulpit, as unlikely as it is, I think in, in the terms of coming up with a strategy that's more than yelling people, yelling at people angrily on YouTube and then asking you to subscribe, I think that's like closer to a more coherent strategy in the time like moving forward, right? Well, it worked a little bit, right? It worked with the COVID relief bill. He went, you know, Obama was scared of the trillion number. Yeah. Biden won 1.9 trillion and he didn't back off from it. And he said, oh, I remember, you know, like, oh, Jesus Christ. Cause he, he was like, maybe we don't do this through reconciliation. Maybe we water it down to try to get Republican votes. It was either he legitimately believed that, but part of me thinks he was just doing it as lip service to appeal to those suburban types that he got who aren't that political, maybe, right? More centrist. Um, And I'm fine with that if that's all it is, if it's posturing. But I fear that that was just his position um, for the stimulus package. And now we're back to we're back to standard Biden, bipartisan Biden. And like to, to be optimistic, even in the foreign policy thing, he it seemed like Biden responded to pressure to recommend to the WTO, um, like through our agencies of the WTO, to um, waive patents for like life-saving coronavirus vaccines after pressure from the left, a lot of people within the country to do so. So like I'm seeing some positive, not conclusive, but some positive natures that Biden can be pushed in a lot of way if we don't like shoot ourselves in the foot as a left and think about always building power, building power strategically. And like- On the power report. <clears throat> absolutely. And um, my last question here, not to be too like emotional, but like that kind of whole thing, that sort of concept of like always thinking about building power and moving forward to that, I always appreciated how like that was the ethos that Michael Brooks sort of always operated in because that was the future that he was looking forward to. That's the future he wanted to build for the left. So um, I'd say you, like not only would I consider you like one of my contemporaries, I consider you like one of the people who are the future of the left. So like in as aspirational as you want to be or not, what does the future of the left look like to you, Emma Vigland? Oh, geez. My, like, uh, what would you like well, it to look like? Well, At one, least. Dan, I mean, you know, we should just say I have like the you know utmost admiration for you. And, you know, you may not be uh, like have the biggest ego being front and center, but you're always doing incredible work. Um, I'm like such an egomaniac, I guess there's something probably wrong with me psychologically. I've got to be on camera and talking the loudest, but um, <laughs> that's a joke. So, uh, but so anyway, if, if uh, only people knew us. <laughs> yeah, but but really, I mean, um, God, I, what the future looks like is a broad working class labor-based coalition that does not get too caught up in cultural nonsense. And I don't mean not being intersectional. I think that's actually very important, but um, does not play into right-wing culture war nonsense. I want the left to be intersectional and, you know, trans people, black people, native people, you know, every, everybody needs to be involved in this broad working class, but class first based coalition. Um, and I think keeping the focus there and not tearing people down because of little differences. I mean, that's what we've seen <laughs> so much of, right? Allowing for grace, allowing for there to be some different gradations and 
focusing and having, and you mentioned Michael, I mean, this was like, what was so special about Michael was he always had a big picture focus. Um, like for example, we had a ton of disagreements. He thought Elizabeth Warren was like trash, absolute trash. And I was staunch that she was the second best candidate in the race. I voted for Bernie Sanders, wept when he lost. Uh, people still think I'm an Elizabeth Warren stand, but that's a different uh, situation altogether. Um, but you know that <laughs> that was just a healthy disagreement, and it wasn't. He wasn't on Twitter calling me a shill or you know a sellout, right? That's like what so much of this discourse is, and it's so online, and it's really nonsense. What the what the real um, meat of everything is. It, it, where that is, is organizing and labor and DSA is doing a really good job. And even though the Alabama Bessemer union movement failed, there is a resurgence and the Reagan scaremongering it's ending. And so there is some light at the end of the tunnel here. And if we can combine organizing power with an increased focus on labor and workers, I think the left can be in good shape. Uh, I think that's really well put. I see a lot of what you're saying as well. First of all, like, <laughs> not to continue the circle jerk, but yeah, like, I love the work you do on Majority Report. And like, um, yeah, you're just like a really, a person like I trust not only just because like we have a history, like I know you as a friend, a person, but like there are not a lot of people in the media space that was like exude like trust. Like I'm looking out for my audience. And I want to make sure I'm informed them. And like, I think that's an important thing to model because I think it was modeled for us. And so we only want that to just like be the way the ecosystem is. But like, as far as thank you, the, the future <laughs> of the left and how that goes, like I, I, I really agree with you. I think that, you know, a lot of like in the vein of Jane McAlave and a lot of the work she does, we just need to combine the energy that we have on the left, combined with the changing tides in society, that things are going more broadly in a way that um, the, the left would agree with politically, like f- down from climate change to healthcare to um, drugs to so many things. We're more progressive of a country as we ever have been. It's just we lack the organizational prowess, and I think some of the institutional knowledge to really smartly and effectively navigate these battles. That's not to say these efforts, like you mentioned, the um, battle in Bessemer, Alabama, like fell short, but that says to, that is to say that we can learn from these things, that these uh, temporary setbacks doesn't mean like the movement is over, that this is a slow, long fought battle that people fought long and continued hard so they could pass the batons to us so that we could ultimately do the same. And that like, Unfortunately, we'll never wake up one day and change is over, but I think we can wake up one day and go, things are gradually better than a point maybe five or 10 years ago. And I think that's been really hard, especially in our generation to say like too many things um, have improved. And like there have been things that have improved in like social rights ways, but for material conditions, a lot of things have just been disapproved, have not improved over the past couple of decades. And I think inspiring that sort of inspiring that idea that things can be done is something that the left can be at the forefront of bringing to America if we can get our shit together and stop arguing on Twitter all the time but you know yeah and it, I mean I and I'm sorry to yes and but I, I we didn't even really mention Bernie Sanders that much um, I think it didn't die with him and I think that that a lot of what we're seeing is some grief um, and just scattershot perspectives um, due to his his loss 
um, and no one really knows where to go. But I think, you know, what you just said is, is the way forward. Yeah. Um, okay. Now it's just our job to pave the way forward and see the ship. No pressure. Yeah. Great. No. Um, Emma Viglin, thank you very much for joining me. We've got to just talk more times when things aren't being recorded. And we I know we should talk people. on the phone less over, you know, you, you text me through WhatsApp and I never check it. So we got to figure something out, a better it, communication style. Excuse me for preferring um, encrypted messaging platforms that don't remind me of the hell site that is Twitter. But no, either way. Yeah, no, you are you are better equipped than I am. I'm just lazy. Fair enough. Well, let's, yeah. let's, let's plan me going to New York and let's see a Rangers game at some point. I'd really love hell that. Hell yeah. But, um, folks, you listening should plan to watch the Majority Report with Sam Cedar and Emma Viglin and a number of other great people who will work behind the scenes and co-host and appear from time to time. Um, weekdays at 12 o'clock noon Eastern, Eastern 9 a.m. Pacific. You see, I live in the Pacific. Yeah, no, no, so no, it's, no, it's, on, it's on YouTube. And I just want to plug this too, because I think a lot of people don't know that we have a partnership with the streaming app Peacock. Uh, we are not sellouts, but um, we do have a partnership with them. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, the, it's, uh, sorry, Glenn Greenwald, just have to stipula- stipulate that every time. Um, the uh, we, uh, we do extra interviews on there that are exclusive to that, and they are just some of the best content um, for, in my view. I mean, I do a half hour interview with an expert on, X, Y, or Z, just something fascinating. And so um, those are at 5 p.m. And you can also just find them on the app under Majority Report. Uh, So there's two different shows there, but also watch us on YouTube. Yes, check out the Peacock app as well. Um, I've seen the show on there and it's really good. I'm just so proud of you, friend. Um, Oh, thank you. I'm proud Uh, of you. Thank you. Uh, Make sure you follow (laughs) Emma Viglin on Twitter. And yeah, do all the things. We'll talk to you soon.